From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're again focusing on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic as countries around the world continue to grapple with managing virus spread while restoring economic activity. Indeed, the strong economic recovery underway since mid-April appears to have stalled in some places like Spain, Japan, and parts of the U.S. that have been forced to roll back reopenings to stem new outbreaks. Where the virus will go from here, what that means for the economy and markets, and how the developing vaccine outlook might impact everything is top of mind. To assess how the virus could evolve ahead, we first turn to Dr. Mark Lipsitch, Professor of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We started by asking him about where we stand in the pandemic. We are hearing some people suggesting that we've actually reached a peak in this pandemic globally. Do you think that is the case? I think it's really hard to predict what will happen globally, but A, there are many places that are showing signs that there are plenty of susceptible people around and B, control measures are not going to stay in place for very long or very intensely, or maybe have already been let off like much of the U.S. And if you have susceptible people and virus and inadequate control measures, cases will go up. In many parts of the world, there's a lot of room for the virus to run still. I got asked by one world leader, actually, an honest question that they had been told by someone that viruses are a bit like a copier cartridge that they sort of run out of ink at some point. But viruses just don't run out of ink there. There's no natural limit on viral spread other than immune people blocking chains of transmission or deliberate efforts to block chains of transmission. I don't think almost anywhere in the industrialized world is anywhere close to herd immunity. There's a big debate raging right now in the community of people who do what I do about whether this virus needs 40% or 20% or 60% to be infected before it is completely controlled by herd immunity. Some people would say even more than 60%. I think the 20% number is not realistic, so I'm in the 40 to 80 camp. But the seroprevalence surveys that have been done are all in the single and low double digits of percent having been infected. But the evidence is clear that control measures slow the virus spread. In almost every part of Europe and almost every part of East Asia that put into place very effective, very intense control measures, much more serious lockdowns than almost anywhere in the U.S., including probably overreactions like not letting people outside on the streets or into parks in some cases. The epidemics came down in all of those countries at a rate of about a tenfold decline over about two months. It's a rough generalization. And in contrast, we in the U.S. in various ways decided with much higher incidence of disease to start reopening early in the summer. And we've had a much worse summer than they have. With this in mind, Dr. Lipsitch explains that three factors will determine the virus's path in the coming months, herd immunity, seasonality, and control measures. Without enough herd immunity, you do not get a decline unless it's seasonal factors or control measures. The three things are all 
multipliers on the reproduction number. Sometimes people think about herd immunity as a yes-no or threshold effect, but it's actually a continuous quantity. It's something that initially does nothing to slow the virus, and then as more people get infected, a little bit slows the virus, and then as more people get infected, slows it even more. I think there are some places that are going to have measurable impact from bird immunity on seasonality. I think we have confirmed that it's not a magic bullet. Nobody serious in the scientific community thought it was enough to stop us from transmitting by itself. With all the other things that are happening, it's very hard to separate out a seasonal component. But a collection of evidence mostly gathered early on, partly by our group and partly by others, makes me think the most likely scenario is that we've got about a 10 or 20% benefit in terms of transmission this summer than we would have if it was winter, and we'll be in a modestly worse position in the winter, having allowed case numbers to get up so high, and then having to deal with a growth rate that's more resistant to our interventions. So my sense is that we're getting some benefit from there being a little bit of herd immunity, and we're getting some benefit from it's being summer right now. We're getting some benefit from the control measures that are in place. Still in the U.S., those three things are not quite enough to bring the trajectory negative and keep transmission under control. And so I'm quite worried, for example, with school reopening that we're going to be in a worse place in a month from now in terms of daily incidents. Dr. Lipsitch says he's least worried about virus resurgence in places that have already been hit hard by the disease. And he also thinks that countries with a clear national strategy to control the disease will have more success in doing so. One observation I've made in this pandemic is that, especially in the United States, there seems to be a very local, like city or state level experience of if you get hit with a big wave once, then you are much more cautious. It's kind of like a companion notion to herd immunity, that it's not real herd immunity, but once a population has experienced the horrors of a really big surge in cases, then control measures seem much more real and valuable. So I'm more optimistic in places that have had a really horrible summer, like Florida and Texas and Arizona, because I at least hope that they will take that experience and turn it into a greater resolve to control transmission. The places that have had a relatively quiet summer that had a really horrific spring, like much of Europe, Massachusetts and New York, have really put resources into bringing the pandemic numbers down. And that means that when there's a resurgence, their contact tracing efforts are likely to be more effective in helping to slow that resurgence and their hospitals will be in better shape to deal with the surge. And if they need to do lockdown, it might be two weeks or three weeks instead of several weeks to get case numbers down. So I think the states that have had really bad time will have the resolve to keep things under control if they can get them under control. I am really worried about much of the rest of the country that sort of hasn't had the bad experience yet. And I'm worried about the places that are high now because I don't know that they will get them down. And I'm more optimistic for much of the rest of the world because there is a national strategy and a multi-pronged approach to trying to bring it down, which has been the fundamental missing ingredient in the United States. So it looks to me like much of 
East Asia and much of Europe that have national strategies and that have a coordinated approach and a clear view that uncontrolled viral spread is detrimental will go through a fairly low amplitude cycle of more cases, more control, letting off a little uncontrol, and may well keep case numbers relatively low for the foreseeable future. But Dr. Lipsitch views the resolution of the pandemic in 2021 as a best-case scenario, even with the help of a vaccine. And he says we won't know if that timeline is achievable until at least the middle of next year. Everyone's looking to next year as the year that this will be resolved. Do you agree with that? I think that's a best-case scenario, and I'm very much hoping for it. And I don't think it's an unrealistic best-case scenario, but I do think it's going to be at least the middle of next year before we really have a sense of control for a few reasons. One important one being that none of these vaccines, as far as I'm aware, has been tested in children yet. And there's a lot to understand about what role children play. And of course, children tend to get milder illness. So maybe that's okay for the short run, but there are a lot of the population and they play some role in transmission. So before we go back to normal, we're going to have to immunize children, and that's going to mean testing vaccines for safety and efficacy in children. That's not even being done yet. And then there's the uncertainty about how good the vaccines will be, and in particular, whether they will contribute to herd immunity significantly by reducing the chance of getting infected or transmitting, or on the other hand, whether maybe they will mainly work through reducing symptoms, which would be great and help to protect people, but would not be as great as if they contribute to herd immunity. And all of that is still to be seen. So there's much to hope for, but still a lot of things have to go right for the vaccines to be the true game changers. I then spoke to our chief economist, Jan Hatzius, to discuss where we are in the global economic recovery from the corona crisis and what many more months, if not years, of living with virus risk means for recovery ahead. It'd be helpful just to understand where we are today in the global economic recovery from this corona crisis. Right now, we think that the economy contracted by 17% global GDP from January to April, and we've probably made up about half of that in the meantime, as manufacturing has come back pretty strongly, construction in many places has come back pretty strongly, and there's been a partial recovery in consumer services, if you want to think about those three areas of disruption, basically. So clearly the consumer, especially consumer services that involve large amounts of face-to-face interaction are slower to recover. And there have been some recent setbacks in some places, but overall we would say we're about halfway through the recovery. From a regional perspective, The big outlier, of course, is China, which saw a huge downturn in January and February and then recovered enormously quickly. They've basically completed what looks pretty much like a V-shaped recovery in terms of their output. But in the major advanced economies, things have been reasonably synchronized, certainly on the way down, very much synchronized with huge declines in the second half of March and April, and very meaningful recoveries since then. 
Looking ahead, Jan's expecting above consensus global growth of 6.5% in 2021, and many developed countries returning to pre-virus activity levels by mid to late next year, despite the ongoing virus uncertainty. I asked him what gives him confidence in this above consensus view. We are somewhat higher than the consensus because we do think that we can bring back economic activity to a significant degree, in particular in the manufacturing and construction sector, even in an environment where at least for the next six months, 12 months, maybe beyond that, virus is still an issue and we don't have a vaccine. Bringing back economic activity in consumer services is, of course, much more sensitive to virus risk, but there are some relatively low-cost measures that can have a significant economic impact and closing down of bars and bans on potential super-spreading events are certainly part of that, but face mask mandates are also important parts of that. We looked at the impact of face mask mandates on actual usage of face masks, and we found that there are very sizable effects with a face mask mandate raising actual face mask wearing by maybe 25 percentage points. So perhaps you go from, say, a 60% share of the population that is always wearing face masks to an 85 or 90% share of the population that's always wearing face masks. If you take the example of the United States, by our estimates, that can bring down the growth rate of confirmed infections by more than half based on the experience of various countries, in order to bring down growth rates of confirmed infections by such a large proportion, our analysis says that you would have to impose broad lockdown measures that potentially subtract as much as 5% from the level of GDP. So given that face masks are very low-cost interventions, I mean, the pecuniary cost is pretty negligible, and the convenience cost is also pretty limited. It seems to us that face mask mandates really do very well from a cost-benefit perspective. Of course, it has become a politicized issue. There is not a national face mask mandate in the United States, despite all this evidence. But I would point out that what we're seeing at the state and local level in the U.S. mimics to some degree a national face mask mandate. The share of the U.S. population that now operates under some kind of state and local face mask mandate has risen sharply from around 40 percent a couple of months ago to 75 to 80 percent now. We've also seen big increases in face mask usage in other countries over the last several months as the evidence for the efficacy of face masks has increased. So I think this is a reason for a certain amount of optimism that you don't have to have broad lockdowns in response to rising infection rates. And there are lower cost measures available. And so it's, I think, a reason alongside the whole vaccine issue to think that we should be able to manage this virus. 
On the vaccine front, our economists are now assuming a relatively optimistic vaccine timeline, namely that the FDA will approve at least one vaccine before the end of the year, and that much of the U.S. and European populations will be vaccinated before late 2021. A year's delay in that timeline would likely shave about two percentage points off of our global growth forecast for next year, with some of the largest effects in the U.S., where the underlying virus situation is relatively bad and our assumed vaccination timeline is relatively early. That said, Jan is confident that the bottom in U.S. and global growth is behind us. If the recent signs that we are starting to see some improvement in virus spread even in the hardest hit areas in the U.S. turn out to be fleeting and we go into the winter and the low cost measures are either not really adopted or proved to be less effective than anticipated. I think it's conceivable that we'd have to see maybe more aggressive lockdowns. I have a very hard time believing that they would be as aggressive as in the first round, because I think we've learned so much about the virus, in particular in terms of the restrictions on activity in sectors other than consumer services. So I'm pretty confident that April put in the low in the level of GDP for the cycle. I think a new bottom in the level of GDP, that to me is very much a tail risk. But yeah, some milder version of a milder period of economic contraction with some renewed setbacks, that's definitely possible. Given the importance of the vaccine outlook for growth and markets, I then spoke to Dr. Richard Hatchett, CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which has funded a portfolio of nine COVID-19 vaccines currently under development. He's also optimistic about the prospect of an FDA-approved vaccine before the end of this year. When do we expect we'll have a safe vaccine that can be distributed at scale? When we initiated our vaccine development programs, which was in late January. We ambitiously set a target of 12 to 18 months for the availability of vaccines at scale. I would say six months into the development efforts, I think we're still on target probably for the first half of 2021 as vaccines beginning to have reached their endpoints in late stage clinical trials. The number of vaccines that have progressed to phase three clinical trials within six months is truly unprecedented, overused word right now, but truly unprecedented, absolutely remarkable. And the data that we're seeing from these vaccines that have entered clinical trials, both in terms of preclinical data, animal challenge models, typically where animals are vaccinated and then challenged with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, or in early stage human clinical trials, so far is encouraging. But we're seeing neutralizing antibodies in humans. So I think the 12 to 18 month timeline that I set back in January of this year is one that I would stick with for right now. But given that we've never successfully developed a vaccine against the coronavirus, I asked Dr. Hatchett about the likelihood that we'll fail to do so today. There is always a risk that any vaccine development effort will fail. The, the risks of failure for a new vaccine that hasn't entered clinical trials yet is very high, probably greater than 90%. There are some diseases like HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, which present significant challenges because the biology is just a hard thing 
to develop a vaccine against either because it mutates or because the targets don't neutralize either the bacteria or the virus. At present, it doesn't seem that the COVID-19 virus falls into the category of hard to develop a vaccine against. I don't want to make any strong predictions in this regard, but COVID's mutation rate seems to be low to moderate, and there is a very prominent protein on the surface of the virus called the spike protein, which is important for binding of the virus to its target cells. And that spike protein does elicit an immune response, and that immune response does produce what are called neutralizing antibodies, which should prevent the virus from being able to infect. So from a scientific perspective, it would appear to be encouraging. One of the concerns that is often expressed is that the vast majority of COVID-19 vaccines that are being developed globally focus on this spike protein that I mentioned. And it is conceivable that the spike protein by itself doesn't induce a strong enough immune response to protect against the virus or transmission. But there are various ways of approaching a virus that may have attributes like that. One would be to develop a very weakened form of the virus, what's called a live attenuated virus. Another might be to have more diversity in terms of the antigens that are being presented to the immune system through the vaccine. So taking the spike protein, but perhaps taking other proteins from the virus as well. So if this first round of vaccines disappoints, we have lots of other different approaches to try, but that's actually an important argument for maintaining investment in research and development. Even if a vaccine is approved, how confident can we be in its safety given the speed of its development? Here's Dr. Hatchett's view. Safety is absolutely critical. Those who develop vaccines and who are involved in the global vaccine enterprise recognize that any safety problem with a vaccine, in a sense, jeopardizes global immunization efforts. Because if you lose confidence in one vaccine, it's possible that confidence will be lost in vaccination, which would be really tragic. And the thing that you have to be mindful of when you're starting a vaccination program of that scale is it's very likely that the vaccine will be prioritized for the populations at greatest risk who are elderly populations and persons who have other medical conditions like heart disease or diabetes. And those populations are the populations where, whether or not somebody's vaccinated at all, there's some frequency of people dropping dead. I mean, to be blunt about it, people who are over 80 or have heart attacks or have other things which will happen at a given rate in the population, no matter what happens to them. And then if you vaccinate a large number of them in a very short period of time, that background rate of disease will continue to occur and it will be difficult to discern if somebody is vaccinated and has a heart attack that day and dies, did that have anything to do with the vaccination or not? And so it doesn't take very many anecdotes to create anxiety. And so I think it would be very, very, very important to do what's called pharmacovigilance, which is monitoring for safety signals in vaccinated populations and to try to the best extent possible to understand baseline rates of predictable events so that we can assess when those events occur in populations that have recently been vaccinated, whether there's any difference from the background rate of events. And that can be really challenging. In 1976, during the swine flu 
vaccination program. It so happened that at one vaccination site, three people who were vaccinated on one day, who were all elderly people seeking vaccination, died. And that one incident, which was ultimately determined to be just a chance occurrence, not related to the vaccine at all, led to the suspension of the vaccination program. So you have to be hyper-vigilant and alert, and you also have to be very thoughtful about how you monitor for safety events and how you calculate the background rates against which these possible safety events may happen. Beyond questions around the safety of the vaccine, there are also questions about the degree of protection any vaccine can provide against it, given that we're still learning about the disease and immunity to it. Dr. Hatchett says these questions will only be answered over time. How confident can we really be in the protection properties of any COVID-19 vaccine at this stage, especially since they are being developed so quickly? The real answer is that time will tell. We are beginning to get a little bit of information about the persistence of the antibody response, but we're not certain that it's just the antibody response that determines immunity. Some vaccines are better than others at eliciting what is called cell-mediated immunity, which is a different type of immune response. And it may be the case that both the antibodies and the cell-mediated immunity are important. It could be the case that one or the other is more important, and it may depend on the attributes of the vaccine, which type of immune response is elicited. Truly, though, this issue of durability of the immune response, this is something where we're going to have to vaccinate people and monitor them over time. And it may be that for one of several reasons, COVID is the kind of disease where you need to get booster immunization. Finally, I asked Dr. Hatchett when enough supply will be available to achieve global herd immunity through vaccination. He thinks that vaccine availability should be sufficient to reduce the sting of the pandemic in 2021. But it's unclear when we may be able to achieve herd immunity for both supply and demand reasons. We don't foresee a scenario in 2021 in which supply of vaccine exceeds global demand. We think that in 2021, we could have enough vaccine to protect healthcare workers globally and to protect populations at greatest risk globally. And if you can take the sting out of the pandemic by reducing the severe disease and death rates and protecting healthcare systems, then you can put the world on the road to restoring normal economic activity. The challenge to doing that is that leaving allocation of vaccine during a pandemic to just general market mechanisms is going to result in misallocation of supply. It is a true market failure, actually, because certain countries will be able to muster resources, will probably overbuy vaccine and essentially chuck up the available supply, protect their populations, but not end the pandemic. And so CEPI and our partners, Gavi and the World Health Organization under COVAX have tried to design a diversified portfolio of vaccine candidates and something we're calling the COVAX facility that then oversees the distribution of vaccines according to principles of equitable access and we hope end the acute phase of the pandemic by the end of 2021. But another thing that is unpredictable is what the uptake of the vaccine is going to be in different communities and different populations. The elderly may be quite interested in getting the vaccine because they think that they're at greatest risk whereas younger people may not be inclined. So we don't know if we'll be able to achieve herd immunity 
through vaccination or not. For all of these reasons, Dr. Hatchett cautions that a vaccine likely won't be a magic bullet that eradicates COVID-19 anytime soon. Is it fair to say then that even if we do get a vaccine, there's going to be a lot of questions that still need to be answered? I think that's absolutely true. There's a lot that we don't know about the vaccines. There's a lot that we don't know about COVID. Almost every week we're hearing something new about the disease. A few months ago it was about the syndrome and the inflammatory syndrome in children. Now we're learning that children probably are infected more than we originally appreciated, even though the disease is very mild. The range of symptoms that people have experienced with COVID is broad. And so I think we will have a period of several years where we continue to learn about the disease, the vaccines, the immune response, and what the uptake of vaccine is going to be. As we continue to monitor the progress of the economic reopening, coupled with progress on the vaccine front, the impact of all of this on economic growth and markets will remain top of mind. I'll leave it there for now. We wish you good health during this difficult time. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.